We're going to read uh, verses 13 through 26. When you found your place there, you can go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. When the scripture speaks, God speaks, and so we stand out of respect. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, um, salvation is humanly impossible. It is, oh Lord God. No one is saved apart from you acting and you working. And Lord, we see, um, we see that in this passage. Uh, we see a number of other things. Lord, expose to us from this passage where we are being self-reliant, where we are depending on things like money, Lord, guard us from that. Protect us, especially in our country, O oh Lord God. May your kingdom and may you be our greatest treasure. Bless the time and the word this morning. Grant me clarity, grant us understanding, and grant us grace to live it out. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've, last week we entered this new narrative section in Matthew where the storyline is being advanced. It's progressing. And, um, it's progressing forward. And I said that a lot of what happens in chapters 19 and 20 is that Jesus encounters different groups. He encounters different groups. So last week he encountered the Pharisees, and they ask him a question, and he answers them, but he then Jesus turns that to then uh, teach his disciples. And uh, what he's doing in all of this section, in chapters 19 through 20, you, what you will see is as Jesus is on his march towards Jerusalem, towards suffering and death, as the Messiah, which is inverted from the conception of the Messiah that that culture at that time had, first century Jewish Palestine, and uh, that the disciples themselves have, you see that Jesus, in addressing these different groups, shows the, adver the inverted values of the kingdom. And it's not just for the people that encounter him, like the Pharisees, or like this morning um, with the, the young man. It's the disciples, because the disciples have imbibed the culture around them, just like we all do. We said culture is like atmosphere. You breathe it in, you breathe it out. I think uh, 
I think it was Jasmine that told me the illustration of using like a tea bag, right? You put a tea bag in hot water. There's, there's, it's that idea. You're in atmosphere. You're going to be changed by it. And that is the idea with cultural values. And so the question, the main overarching question I want you to keep asking as we work through chapters 19 through 20 is this. What cultural values have you absorbed that Jesus wants to invert in your life? See, Jesus wants to do that. He wants to upset your apple cart. Uh, he doesn't want you to be comfortable because comfort leads to death. And so Jesus wants to invert values. What are those things for you? Last week, Jesus addressed the issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage. And we talked about that. And now he moves on to an easier topic this week. He talks about money and ability. Um, that was tongue-in-cheek. Uh, 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 the, we, see, each of these values uh, that Jesus addresses, they're things that we all address. They hit close to home. They address our hearts because in any time, in any place, these same values that the world has, that the culture around us has, are going to be there. But Jesus' kingdom has inverted values from the way humans operate. And so as we enter this section this morning, the main idea is this, despise self-reliance and be utterly dependent on God's salvation through following Jesus to enter the kingdom of heaven. Despise self-reliance and be utterly dependent on God's salvation through following Jesus to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we start in verses 13 through 15 with a, a, a small section, but another encounter and an encounter between Jesus and children. And you might think, well, um, uh, that's off by itself. It's not connected with what follows it. But you will see that this section with the children is intentionally placed. We need to see that in connection with what Jesus is going to say to the young man. And so in verses 13 through 15, we see this, that the kingdom belongs to the utterly dependent. The kingdom belongs to the utterly dependent. Look at verse 13. Then children were brought to him. Now, this word for children is the same word that was used in chapter 18. You remember chapter 18? The disciples asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus takes a child and sets them in the midst of them. That's this, it's the same word that's used here. And we said back, then, uh, back in chapter 18 that the, this uh, designation for child probably designates a child uh, seven years old or younger, just as a rough estimate. So um, these children are brought. How are they brought by? Probably their parents um, is most likely. But the focus is not on the parents. The focus is on the children. The children were brought to him, brought to Jesus. Why? In order that he might lay his hands on them and might pray. Now, uh, laying on of hands, is a, a, you see it throughout the scriptures. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. And in a general sense, the idea of laying on of hands is you're forming an identification with whoever you're laying hands on. Uh, you're forming some form of identification. But it's used in different ways. So in the Gospels, Jesus lays hands on people and heals them. In Acts, uh, there's laying on of hands and prayer for commissioning. Um, so what's going on here... Uh, what best understanding is, it's not so much that Jesus is probably healing these kids... It's that the parents perceive that Jesus is a prophet, he's a man of God, he's an agent of God, and so it makes sense. Uh, children are very vulnerable, very high mortality rate in that culture and in that time. And so the parents are bringing kids to Jesus for blessing. 
That's probably the way, best way we could take it. Um, probably not so much for healing, but for blessing. God is, uh, Jesus is an agent for God. Uh, they want him to pray and, he, and to lay hands on these kids to receive God's blessing. Uh, but notice how the disciples respond. But the disciples rebuked them. Now, your translation, like the ESV, might say they rebuked the parents or the people who were bringing the kids. But actually, grammatically, it's more likely that the disciples are rebuking the children. They're rebuking the children. Now, why would they do that? Children were valued in that society and time. Um, uh, Jewish parents um, uh, uh, valued kids. Um, so that's not so much the issue, but what you have to understand is that though kids were valued, they are the lowest on the totem pole. They are lowest on the totem pole. They don't have any resources to, to give. They are in need of instruction. They're utterly dependent on their parents. So they are the socially the lowest. And it seems like if we were to read between the lines and kind of understand at least the kind of character that we've seen displayed of the disciples to this point in Matthew... Probably what's going on is the disciples understand this is the Messiah. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. He is a great man. He doesn't need to deal with the lowest of the society. He doesn't need to deal with kids. Come on, kids, get away. You're getting in Jesus' way. That's probably the mindset. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 14. But Jesus said, Permit the children and do not hinder them from coming to me. Why? For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So the mindset of the disciples seems to be, uh, these are low, um, uh, yeah, we value kids, but um, there are low people on the totem pole. They're utterly dependent. They have nothing to offer Jesus. Um, you know, they, they just need to go away. Jesus says, no, let them come. Why? The why is the important part here. For the kingdom of Heaven belongs to such as these. He doesn't say it belongs to children. It says he belongs to such as these. And really, this is a repeat of the same logic that he used at the beginning of chapter 18. You can turn back there briefly if you want. But remember, I already alluded to it, when they're asking who's the greatest in the kingdom, and he plops one of these kids in the midst of the disciples, and notice what he says in verse 3 of chapter 18. And it said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what we said there and what we say here is, is the idea is uh, being you don't enter the kingdom unless you have utter dependence like a child. Uh, unless you uh, renounce in terms of society, you, you're not the highest on the totem pole or even midway in the totem pole. You are the lowest in society. If you become a Christian, if you follow Jesus and you come utter, in utter dependence, not for your own honor, but for the honor of God. And so Jesus reminds them of that. They've still got that mindset and that value that those who are valuable are the self-made, the, the higher on the totem pole, the respectable. But Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom of heaven belongs, meaning it's composed of, it belongs to the kingdom, those who display utter dependence. They don't come with pretense. They come like these kids. These kids are just coming. They don't have anything to offer Jesus. They're utterly dependent 
in every way, but what they're coming to, they're coming to Jesus for blessing. And what does Jesus do? Verse 15, he does it. He places his hand on them, and he goes away from there. Now, like I said, this is a short little episode, and it's connected with ideas that we've already seen in chapter 18, but particularly, this episode is important as a key contrast to what is going to now happen in verses 16 through 26. So you need to keep the mindset of how these kids are coming to Jesus. Utter dependence, no pretense, lowest people on the totem pole coming to Jesus, and he is for blessing, and he does bless them. Now keep that in your mind as we now walk into verses 16 through 22, where Jesus has another encounter and what you will see in this encounter is that self-reliance will lead you to eternal grief. Self-reliance will lead you to eternal grief. Look at verse 16. And behold, one approached him and said... Now, um, this is very interesting how Matthew introduces this character. Now, you already know the story, so you're already preloading a lot of ideas about who this guy is. But that's not how Matthew starts to present him. He just literally introduced, uses the word one, or like someone, some guy. So some guy approaches Jesus, doesn't tell us anything about him. And so you need to think along those lines as Matthew introduces him that way. Just some guy approaches Jesus, and he says this, teacher, now, when you walk through the book of Matthew and you can look at how uh, Jesus is addressed by different groups, uh, the people that address him as teacher are usually his enemies. Because it's not wrong to call Jesus teacher, but um, it doesn't go far enough. Because you'll see uh, more exemplary characters in the book of Matthew, like the centurion or like the Canaanite woman, and they call Jesus Lord. They give him some honor. Maybe they don't fully understand all of um, Jesus uh, uh, as the Messiah, although evidently the woman, or the Canaanite woman, does. But uh, what this guy is using, he's using a term, and it already signals for us, uh-oh, this is not good. This guy doesn't view Jesus rightly. And that's a big deal in the Gospel of Matthew, is who is Jesus? Jesus is the king. He is the son of God. He is God the son. He is... Um, he is God the Son become flesh to save his people from their sins. So this guy addresses the somebody. This somebody comes up to Jesus and says, teacher. Okay, so how is this guy viewing Jesus? He's viewing him as a human teacher, like any other human teacher, like a religious expert. You could put it like that. What does he ask? What good shall I do in order to have eternal life? What good shall I do in order to have eternal life? Now, your translation might read, what good thing? It is singular, but probably the guy is just talking about good in general, like the category of good. I need to do something good in order to enter eternal life. What is it? He's asking a human religious expert from his point of view what good he needs to do in order to have eternal life. What does that mean? to have eternal life. What does he conceive of it? What does the Gospel of Matthew conceive of that term? This is actually the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that eternal life is mentioned. 
Every other time in the Gospel of Matthew that life is mentioned, uh, it's just life. Uh, and here we get the adjective eternal. Uh, Jesus has talked about eternal fire uh, and versus entering the kingdom uh, earlier in uh, chapter 18. Uh, so what does this term mean? Well, what you need to understand, and this is, this is part of where we need to shift our thinking, what you need to understand is that in the Gospel of Matthew, eternal life, life, and entering the kingdom are synonymous ways of referring to the same reality. Those are equivalent ways of referring to the same reality. You're going to see it in this section. You're going to see it in coming sections. Jesus will start to use the term eternal life. But eternal life and life and entering the kingdom are equivalent ways of speaking. Now, with, let's take an aside for a minute and talk about how we conceive of eternal life. When we use that phrase in, let's just start with Christian circles generally, what do we think of? We probably think of something like this. I'm going to die, and if I'm in Christ, my soul will go to be with Jesus forever and enjoy his presence. That is true, but it is incomplete. Because the way the scriptures talk about eternal life, they talk about it in very physical and tangible terms. Because if you go back to the way the humanity was designed... Uh, to enjoy life, and remember the tree of life in the midst of the garden? Remember that? Uh, it's in a garden, embodied, uh, where you can eat things, and where you can have face-to-face -face fellowship with God while you obey his commands. That's what life was like in the garden. So that's one bookend of the scriptures. You look at the other bookend of the scriptures, the end of the story, so to speak, in Revelation, it's back to the same. Now, it's better but it's back to the same. Eternal life, in the fullest sense, is living on earth where heaven has come down to earth and where there is face-to-face -face fellowship with God, enjoying his presence in a physical body, in a physical creation, eating, uh, eating and drinking and enjoying uh, life. That is eternal life. So you need to ban, if you have that kind of notion that you're going to, you know, from the cartoons or whatever, you know, you're going to die and you're going to float up in the clouds and you're going to have a harp and all of that kind of business, and it's kind of ethereal and fuzzy and all that, that's not what the scriptures talk about with regard to eternal life. Eternal life is the kingdom where God, the Father, is reigning, but he is reigning through a stewardship human king like Adam, but at the end of the scriptures, we see it's Jesus, the second Adam, ruling over his creation. That's the conception of the scriptures. That's the conception of this guy who's coming to Jesus, and that's the conception of Jesus himself. Eternal life is dwelling physically on the earth uh, with God, enjoying him and obeying his commands forever. That is eternal life. Okay, so this guy wants to know, well, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? What is Now, um, just think for a moment. Let's suppose someone came up to you and said, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? Think about how you would answer that question and compare and contrast it with what Jesus does. This is very interesting. Verse 17, but Jesus, he said to him, why are you asking me? concerning the good. So first, Jesus doesn't respond to his question at all, or he responds with another question. 
And what's interesting here is the focus, the emphasis is on me. Why are you asking me concerning the good? Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus understands that this guy is viewing Jesus, this fellow is using Jesus as a, um, a good religious teacher, but nothing more. So from his perspective, uh, from that perspective, Jesus is disarming him and kind of calling him up short and saying, well, why would you be asking a human religious expert about what's good? Why would you do that? Because notice what Jesus says, one is good. If you want to talk about goodness, if you want to talk about goodness, there's only one. There's only one. And he's obviously talking about God himself. You want to talk to someone or ask someone about what you need to do in order to, what good thing or what good you need to do in order to have eternal life, you don't talk to a human religious expert, you talk to God, the good one, the one who alone is good. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, you've got it wrong, pal. You're looking, for the wrong, you're looking at the wrong source from the way you're perceiving things. His perception is Jesus is just a human religious teacher, but um, why would a human religious teacher have anything to say about what's good? You have to go to the source. You have to go to the one who is good, namely God. The one in whom there is no evil whatsoever but is only and truly and absolutely good. And so Jesus takes him there. What does he say next? Uh, why do you ask me about concerning what's good? One is good. Now, if you want to enter into the life, so you see what Jesus has done. He's dropped the eternal. He's just talking about life. And he's using this word for entrance because, like I said, uh, uh, when we talk about entrance, in the Gospel of Matthew, he's talking about entrance into the kingdom. They're synonymous. Eternal life, life, and entrance into the kingdom, same thing. So Jesus is saying, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, I'm going to guess at this point, if you're thinking about how you would, um, let's say, talk to this man about what he needs to do in order to have eternal life, you probably wouldn't say this. But Jesus does. And he's not just stating it as like, this is the common opinion of the day. Jesus is saying, you want to enter life? You keep the commandments. And Jesus is drawing that from the one who is good and what that one who is good has said in his word. Turn back, if you would, to Leviticus. Leviticus. So Leviticus is in the midst of God. Uh, God has formed a covenant with Israel, called the Mosaic Covenant, the Israelite Covenant. And um, this covenant, um, God has forged a relationship between Israel as a nation and himself. And really, it's the rules, um, the precepts by which God is going to govern this nation. And Leviticus, in particular, is all about how does a sinful people dwell in, uh, in, uh, next to a holy God? And so um, there's early on in Leviticus, there's a sacrificial system of how you can approach God. But then the question is, if you can approach God through sacrifice, how do you live? How do you live? And that's the second part of Leviticus, where chapter 18 is part of that. Notice, let's start in verse 1. Leviticus 18, 1. 
And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh your God, who uh, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules keep, and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am Yahweh your God. Now watch this, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. You see that. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. What is God saying in Leviticus 18.5? He's saying, all right, Israel, you have a relationship with me as a nation, as a people. Uh, if you want to enter life, what is God's aim? Uh, from, uh, from Eden, Eden uh, was the original design of humanity. Adam fell, but then God, throughout the scriptures, is moving to restore things back to that direction. Israel was a big part of this because the nation had these promises that uh, if you obey the commands, uh, I'm going to bless you with land and a lot of kids and a lot of material blessings. And what that's supposed to evoke is a return to Eden. In other words, a return to life. In other words, a return to eternal life. But God is saying in 18.5, it's not going to happen unless you obey. You need to obey. You must obey. You must keep my commands in order to enter life. Scholars will often try in Leviticus 18.5 to say, well, yeah, but he's talking about life in the land. He's not talking about eternal life. And I think that's wrong because the way that the scriptures talk about eternal life is in a land, fellowshipping with God, having a relationship with God, and walking in obedience to him, and he blesses you. That's the, that's the picture of eternal life from Genesis to Revelation. And so Jesus is right. You want to enter life as an individual. It doesn't happen apart from obeying God's commands. Jesus isn't saying, oh yeah, that's the prevailing opinion. He's saying that's true. But what he's doing and you have to understand where Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Mosaic Law are coming from, uh, it's not just that God wants external obedience to the law. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and we talked about this last week, God wants obedience from the heart. And uh, Deuteronomy, we talked about this last week, talked about Israel as having hardness of heart. So the ideal is that uh, when you obey the law, you actually have a circumcised heart, a heart for God, such that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, you obey his commands. So Jesus is citing something true about how one relates to God, how one enters life. He's not giving all of the picture there. He's assuming what Deuteronomy talks about. It's not just about obeying the commands in an external way. It's about obeying commands from the heart. But Jesus has framed this whole conversation in such a way to snuff out this guy's problem. Okay? He's saying, all right, if you want to enter life, keep the commands. That's true. Is it everything is about the truth? No, it's a piece of the truth. But Jesus is maneuvering this guy to expose to him what his issue is. Look at verse 18. Now, what's really interesting here. So Jesus said, you want to have life? Keep the commands. What's really interesting is at the beginning of verse 18, uh, and it's hard to see this in English, you can't really see it in English, but in the original, there is a marked form 
that indicates that the way the guy responds is surprising. Okay? So you're just going to have to... I can talk to you about the, the, the dynamics of that later if you want, but you're going to have to take my word for it right here, that there is a verbal form that marks the guy's response as surprising. Well, what does he respond with? He is saying to him, which ones? Now think about that for a second, and we get to understand why that's a surprising response. If God commands something, how important is it? Very important, right? Uh, it's not optional. It's not pick and choose. It's not, uh, you know, a command buffet where I can choose this thing, but I don't like that. Uh, no, all of God's commands are important. Now, there is a reality in which you can boil all of the commands down to loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. But that doesn't negate the importance of all of the commands. So this is surprising. This guy wants to pick and choose. He wants to pick and choose. What's he doing? He's maneuvering. He's bargaining. He's bargaining. He wants to pick and choose which commands he wants to, to, um, to keep. So how does Jesus respond? But Jesus said, he's, all right, he starts giving him a list. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice something about the list that Jesus gives. All of those commands have to do with horizontal human relationships, don't they? Now, you would think, you would think, because he's listing part of the Ten Commandments here, uh, in addition to Leviticus 19.18, the love your neighbor as yourself, you would think that Jesus would go for the jugular. He would say, well, let's talk about loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's talk about not having uh, any other gods before me. Let's talk about those vertical commands, those vertical relationships. Why is Jesus focusing on horizontal, human-to-human -human, um, commands? Because that's what all of these are. Murdering, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness, honoring father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are all horizontal, human-to-human -human commands. Now, here's what you have to understand about how the law and how the uh, operates and how the prophets in the Old Testament interpret the law. When the prophets go after Israel for disobedience to the law, they start in the exact same place that Jesus does, human-to-human -human relationships. Because the reality of the law is if you are loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it can't but flow out into your human relationships. And so if you want a diagnostic of how you're doing in your relationship with God, look at your human relationships. That's what Jesus is doing. And he talks about negative commands, and he talks about positive commands. Uh, the law is not just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. There are positive things you must do according to God. And so what is Jesus doing? He's saying, all right, you want to play the which command? Let's start with the easier ones. Let's start with the diagnostic of the horizontal relationships. Because here's how God says your relationships ought to be. Now, that's Jesus' response what is the guy, the somebody? Remember, he's just a somebody at this point, right? He's just a someone. He's been asking this question. Now, verse 20, remember how I said um, that in verse 18, there was a special verbal form that marks uh, the guy's response as surprising? The same thing happens in verse 20. 
So again, the guy's response is surprising. But I want you to notice one other thing. What is the somebody called in verse 20? He's a young man. He's a young man. Now, Matthew already knew that. He held that information back right to here. Why? Because it's important to understand the guy's response and why it's surprising. What does the guy say? All things, all these, all these I kept. Why is that surprising? There's two reasons. One, is the guy's claim plausible? Well, if you view the list that Jesus gave in a surface way, then yes. It's very plausible that the guy didn't murder anyone. It's very plausible that he hadn't committed adultery. It's very plausible that he hadn't stolen. It's very plausible that he hadn't borne false witness in court. It's very plausible that he honored his father and mother in tangible ways. It's very plausible that he loved his neighbor as himself in the sense that that command in uh, first century Judaism, it would often mean you give alms to the poor. And that's something you do. And so you're loving your neighbor in that way. So at a surface level, is it plausible? Yes. And yet, what has Jesus shown in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount? God is not interested in just the surface application of these commands. He is very much interested in obeying these commands from the heart. Which is why, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says wrongful anger is murder. Uh, looking at a woman lustfully is adultery, etc., etc., etc. So the guy at a surface level can say, the young guy can say at a surface level, yeah, I kept those. I've kept those. It's done. But what's the other problem? What's the other reason his response is surprising? He's young. In other words, he hasn't had a whole lot of life yet to know the wickedness of his own heart, if he looked beyond just the mere surface application of the law to begin with. But keeping God's commands is not just like a one-and-done thing. Oh, I did that once. It's a whole-life proposition from the heart. So this is a very foolish and arrogant response. It's a self-reliant response. It's a can-do response. I've done that. I've done that. And yet, this fellow, this young guy, uh, knows that something's still wrong. What still am I lacking? What still am I lacking? You see, this guy uh, is self-reliant, and he's what we would call, rightfully so, a legalist. What is legalism? Legalism is not about having commands versus not commands. God has commands that happened before the fall. So commands and rules are not wrong in and of themselves. That's not legalism. Legalism is when you are self-reliant and depend on your keeping of the law in order to have a relationship with God, which is the state this guy is in. And when you do that, you're going to select, well, which commands? And you're going to want a list, and you're going to want to check off the list. But no matter how much you check off the list, you're going to come to a place where you say the same thing that this guy does. What still do I lack? You're never going to feel secure. You're going to feel empty. You're going to realize, I'm lacking something. If I'm just checking the boxes to try to bargain for eternal life, that's really what legalism does. You're checking the boxes to try to bargain for eternal life, what do I still lack? 
And Jesus answers him, verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect. Now, this word here for perfect, we've encountered it one other time in Matthew. It's only used one other time in Matthew, in Matthew 5.48, where Jesus said, you must be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. But this idea, this word um, for perfect, it has the idea of completion, so yes, it has probably in this instance and probably also in Matthew 5.48 the idea of perfection, but it's, it's more the idea of completion. And what is going on here? Well, Jesus is answering what the guy just said. What do I still lack? Well, Jesus says, if you want to be complete, if you want to be complete, here's what you do. Go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Well, a few things we say about this. First, notice the end. And you can't miss this. Uh, this is set in the context of Jesus' call for discipleship. When Jesus says, come, follow me, that's the call of discipleship. It's the same sort of call that you see in Matthew 4 when Jesus talks to uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And he says, they're, you know, they're cleaning their nets by the boat. And he says, come follow me. And they what? Drop everything, drop their livelihood, and come follow Jesus. It's also that idea uh, that you see in Matthew 16, 24 and following. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What Jesus is doing with the rest of this is saying, here's what repentance and faith looks like for you. Because Jesus knows this guy. He knows what his problem is, and he's maneuvered him into this situation to target what is going on in his heart. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is for disciples, those who have repented, turned their allegiance from sin and self, and are trusting Jesus, are following Jesus, are obeying Jesus. And turn back to Matthew 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, of how Jesus talks about what a disciple is going to do. Chapter 6, we'll start in the first four verses. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, thus when you give to the needy, so Jesus is assuming his disciples are going to give to the poor, which there were a lot of poor, there were a lot of, there was a high percentage of first century Israel that were at subsistence level or below. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that what? Your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the idea of giving in such a way that your aim is to please your Father, um, there is reward, there is treasure. And you tie this together then with what Jesus says in chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Actually, I'll read through verse 24. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, he will either, for he will either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And Jesus' point in all of this is where you put your money, and he is talking about literal money, although we could expand that to just resources in general, but where you put your money is going to drag your heart that direction. That's how money works. Because money is expressing where your values are. And so if you put your money on earth, your heart is grounded to earth. Whereas, what's the goal? You want your heart grounded in heaven, lifted to heaven. And so Jesus says in all of this, don't give for earthly reward, give for heavenly reward. And that is the problem with this fellow, because see, Jesus is calling this guy to discipleship. He's saying, come follow me, because when you follow Jesus... What is Jesus going to do? He is going to circumcise your heart the way that Deuteronomy, the way that um, that Leviticus talked about. And he's going to change you such that you do live in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount. And he will change you such that you will obey God's commands from the heart and so that you will be complete. But you have to follow Jesus. You can't do it on your own. And what Jesus is doing is he's targeting this guy's heart issue because notice how the guy responds in verse 22 of Matthew 19. But after hearing the young after hearing the word the young man departed grieving. Why was he grieving? For he was one having many possessions. Now only up at this point does Matthew reveal that this guy has a lot of money, has a lot of stuff. And what is the young man doing? His heart is there. His heart is with his stuff. His heart is with his wealth. And so that's why Jesus says to this guy, uh, if you want to follow me, well, that includes repentance. And repentance for you, because your heart is so entwined in your stuff, is going to be selling all you have, liquidating your assets, giving to the poor in a way that pleases the Father, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. That's Your heart is no longer bound to the stuff of earth. Now, uh, you, because of the act of giving to the poor in a way that pleases the Father, your heart is going to be anchored in heaven. That's what repentance looks like for this guy. And the cost is too high. His approach throughout all of this has been bargaining. Right? That's essentially what he's been doing. He's trying to buy security, what we might call eternal security. He's trying to bargain for eternal security. He wants to buy it, whether by his actions or by his money. But then Jesus gives the price. It's going to cost you everything. Now, that's the call of discipleship regardless. You know, there's no discipleship to Jesus unless you give up everything. And for this guy, it means literally Giving up, liquidating his assets to follow Jesus. And so now you've got a cost-benefit analysis, don't you? 
right? The guy is weighing in his mind, well, all my stuff on earth versus the kingdom. And he chooses his stuff. He chooses his stuff because that's where his heart is. And Jesus has maneuvered the whole conversation to show him that. But that's not where this whole conversation ends. So here's the encounter. He's talked to the guy, and unfortunately, this fellow does not heed the call of discipleship. He goes away. He can't see the value of the kingdom. He can't see the value of the king. It's too costly. But Jesus still has a lesson for his disciples. And the lesson is this. Salvation is only possible with God. Look at verse 23. Now Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, which is Jesus' way of highlighting, hey, what I'm about to tell you is really important. Truly I say to you that a rich person with difficulty will enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, he's talking about entrance into the kingdom, which all along the whole conversation is about entering life or entering eternal life, and Jesus just frames it now in the other way, entering the kingdom. It's all synonymous. But what is he saying? With difficulty, a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. But then he goes right on in verse 24 to add on to it. Now again, let's add on to what I just said. I am saying to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the picture here is a sewing needle. You can actually see some first century sewing needles. I saw a picture of one this week. But it looks an awful lot like a sewing needle, uh, like one that you would have in this day and age. Maybe the hole's a little bit bigger. Maybe the needle's a little bit bigger. So maybe we're talking, let's just envision a hole that's the size of a 16th to an eighth of an inch. Something like that, right? Very small hole. Then you've got a camel, uh, which is like the biggest land animal that you would normally experience in, the, uh, in Palestine. That's a very nice visual picture. And Jesus is saying, uh, camel through the eye of the needle. How hard is that? Impossible. It's impossible. And Jesus is saying, that's easier than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Remember how this idea of narrowness, uh, Jesus has mentioned before. He mentioned it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? He says, um, uh, narrow is the way to enter into life. And you got a rich person coming, wanting to enter the kingdom. Well, it's like a big old camel trying to go through the narrow way into the entrance of the kingdom. It's impossible. So what is Jesus saying? He's not just saying it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom. He's saying it's impossible. 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 Now, we're all in trouble if that's the case, because all of us in this room live way above subsistence standards, right? We're, we're in the scope of history in the world. We are all very wealthy people. It's impossible for us to enter the kingdom. So what are we doing here? Well, it, the conversation goes on. Verse 25. If you're astounded by that statement, and you should be, you should hear the full force of what Jesus just said. The disciples are also astounded. Now, after the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded, meaning they're like blown away. They're flabbergasted is another way we would say that. They're flabbergasted. And how do they expre express their flabbergastedness? Saying, who then is able to be saved? Now, you have to understand the mindset here to understand their logic. 
in that day and age, and it's true also for some in our day and age as well, when someone is wealthy, that signals God's blessing. So if you have a lot of stuff and you have a lot of wealth, uh, that means you're blessed by God. And so if you're blessed by God, that must mean he's happy with you. And if he's happy with you, then you certainly have the best shot of entering the kingdom. And you see their argument then. Well, wait a minute, Jesus, you're saying that the rich people, the people that are most likely, that those people that have God's blessing on earth, those people, they're most likely to enter the kingdom. You're saying they can't even enter. So what hope is there for the rest of us? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. They're saying the rich people have the most opportunity to enter the kingdom because they have the marks of God's blessing, who then it all can be saved. Because we're poor, we don't have as much as the rich do, so we don't have God's blessing, therefore, what hope is there for us? And notice how Jesus answers, verse 26. Now Jesus gazes at them. It's like a fixed stare. This is interesting. You get the picture that Jesus didn't respond immediately. He just kind of stares at them for a couple seconds, lets it hang in the air. He's looking at them. And then he speaks. He said to them, with man, people, this. Now, what's the this? Being saved. Being saved, which is equivalent in the context to entering the kingdom, entering life, having eternal life. With people... This is impossible. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, it's not just impossible for the rich. It's impossible for anyone. The rich have a disadvantage because they have more stuff to invest in the earthly, and so their heart is more likely to be grounded. But it's impossible for anyone. If you, if a man, a person, a woman, a man, doesn't matter, um, Any person who looks only to what man can do to save themselves, self-reliance, wealth, action, it's impossible. You will not, you cannot save yourself. But that's not the end of the story. But with God, all things are possible. And what is he saying? He's saying salvation is possible. For the rich or for the average Joe, for the poor or for the middle class or for the luxury class, whatever. But it's only possible with God. And here's where we come full circle to where the whole passage today started. Verses 13 through 15. Because how did those children come to Jesus? Empty-handed, lowest people on the totem pole, no pretense, total dependence. And Jesus says, "These people like these that come like this to God, to Jesus for blessing, empty-handed, utter dependence, there is salvation. To those belongs the kingdom. And so that's the issue in all of this is... Self-reliance versus utter dependence. Self-reliance versus utter dependence. And boy, our culture loves self-reliance. We love self-reliance. We love self-made people. We like to feel that I've made myself, I've pulled myself up from my bootstraps, rags to riches stories. We, we like those because 
It was about us. It was about our effort. We, we were self-made people. Jesus says, you hold on to that. You're not entering. You're like a camel trying to go through an eye of a needle. You have to let it go. You have to let it go. What things can we pull from this passage? Multiple, multiple things. First, and I'm going to frame most of these in question form. Is your Christianity only about the things you do or don't do? Are you a list checker? I, I did this, I did this, I did this, I went to church, I went to the Bible study, I prayed today, I read my Bible. All those are good things, right? But when you're trying to use them to bargain for eternal life, you're in trouble. Because God wants not the checklist, God wants the heart. And only Jesus can change your heart such that you will obey out of the heart. Here's another question. Is eternal a life, because that was the big focus in this passage the guy asked about, is eternal life only about escape and safety for you? Right? I'm going to avoid hell. I'm going to have my fire insurance. You know, that's the way we talk about it. If that's how you conceive of eternal life, you need to be afraid. Because that's not how scripture talks about eternal life. Just a mere escape from damnation. That is definitely true, praise God. But it, we're saved to something. And what are we saved to? Jesus says in John 73, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing and loving and delighting in Jesus. And then all the extra stuff about eternal life, namely being in a body on a renewed heavens and a new earth and enjoying food and fellowship, it ultimately is just kind of the exterior stuff that goes along with enjoying God in a renewed creation. But if you just think of eternal life as security, you're going to bargain like this guy rather than enjoying and seeking to obey God from the heart. Here's a question. Would you be willing to liquidate all your assets to enter the kingdom? If Jesus came to you and said, you know, um, friend, if you want to enter eternal life, if you want to follow me, here's my demand on your life. Uh, liquidate everything you have and follow me. Give to the poor, give it to people who need it, and then follow me. Would you do that? Now, your hang-up might not be money or possessions. Now, money and possessions are very dangerous things because Jesus makes it clear where your treasure is, your heart is. You are in a dangerous position because the more stuff you have, the more money you have, the more your heart is likely to be anchored to earth. But your hang-up might not be money. It might be something else. You're going to have to give up something because Jesus says, anyone who wants to come after me, anyone who wants to come after me, has to deny himself, renounce self, repudiate self, take up his cross, and follow me. What is grounding your heart earthward? That's what you need to give up for the sake of following Jesus. Where are you self-reliant before God? Is it your money? Is it your ability to obey? Is it your comfort? Is it having a good family? Is it keeping the rules? Do you believe what Jesus says, that nothing you have or can do can save yourself? It's up to you. You can't save yourself. 
You can't enter the kingdom if you're self-reliant, but only if you deny yourself and are utterly dependent on Christ, on his death in his people's behalf, in the behalf of their sin and his righteousness in your place, coming to him in repentance and faith. And I want to end on this one, because this one's kind of odd, um, especially as we um, think about this passage, but I think it's coming from the text. How does your heart react to Jesus' statement, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments? You see, Jesus didn't make that statement as a hypothetical. He didn't make that statement as the opinion of his day. He said, if you want to enter life, you've got to keep the commandments. That's true. And we don't like that, do we? Because we're good Protestant Christians, and we dare not go anywhere near salvation by works. And that's not what Jesus is doing either. But there's a sort of reaction to salvation by grace through faith alone where it becomes cheap grace. Where, okay, um, I know I can't save myself. I'm going to trust Jesus alone for everything, and I'm saved and I'm good, and that's it. There's nothing else. But friends, the reality is, is that Jesus, through his death and his righteousness in our place, secures our standing with God, and he also transforms your whole life. He circumcises your heart so that you want to obey God's commands from the heart. And so if you are in Christ, you belong to him, and he's one that you, you're one that he's chosen to enter his kingdom, you will obey his commands from the heart. But if you have no heart to obey his commands, you have a vacuous Christianity. It's cheap. You've cheapened God's grace because God's grace not only gives us righteous standing before God, it changes us so that we live righteous lives. We obey God's commandments. Do you believe your actions must be radically changed if you're going to enter life? Or is your view of God's grace cheap where you think he doesn't care about how you live even as you claim to follow Christ? Despise self-reliance. It's a dirty word. Despise it. And be utterly dependent on God's salvation through following Jesus to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we are self-reliant people. Uh, we're self-reliant rich people. And we need your grace to not have our hearts anchored earthward, but to give, um, to give and to yield up our resources, our whole life. Uh, that's what you call us to deny self, self-repudiation to follow you. That all of who we are in our lives belongs to you. You're the boss. You rule our lives. We don't anymore. We take our cue from you, and our values become your values. They look like upside-down values in the eyes of the world. It would look stupid to liquidate your assets and give to the poor and follow you. But Lord, help us to look foolish in the eyes of the world because we understand the long game, that the kingdom, with you at the center of it, ruling in beauty, in majesty, in a renewed heavens, in a renewed earth, that that is worth any and every sacrifice because you, you are the treasure. 
Oh, Lord God, circumcise our hearts. If there are any in here who do not have a regenerate heart, regenerate them to see that reality and bring them to repentance and faith. We would ask it, and we would ask here and now that we would live in endurance, keeping your commands out of a heart of love for you to the end until we enter the kingdom. Give us patience, give us trust, give us utter reliance on you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.